Welcome back to the Absite Smackdown podcast, and on today's episode, you may hear some noise in the background, including seagulls and waves. We're here on the beach in St. Martin, where myself and the team are helping to set up a hospital for the local residents who've contracted the COVID virus. On today's episode, and some of the ones that follow, you'll hear us discussing COVID and the update on response in both the United States and across the world. And just as importantly, we'll keep you going with absite-related facts and entire absite review sections. So with that, let's get to it. Welcome to the Absite Smackdown podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Well, like we said just moments ago, uh, the response to the COVID-19 virus has really been amazing. Clearly, in the United States, we've experienced some of the challenges with doing everything from closing our border to, quote, turning off, unquote, our economy. In reality, it's pretty amazing when you think about it, and the physician discussions here with me on the island have centered around questions like, how many people will be affected from both a health and mortality standpoint by the fallout from closing our economy? Here on the island, we've also seen uh, significant changes as uh, martial law is in effect, and we haven't been able to leave the hotel uh, often uh, until just this last week, where on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we're allowed outside, etc. But the beaches are empty, the stores are shuttered, and in reality, we're going back and forth uh, to the hospital to help out, and not much more. So the response here has been truly amazing. And with that, let's get to the absite review section for this talk, which is thyroid. Thyroid comes from endoderm in the third week of gestation. It descends from the foramen cecum to just above the cricoid. From the first and second pharyngeal arches, uh, we have the thyroid um, uh, arise. So the thyroid arises from those first and second pharyngeal arches, not the pouches. Now, the ultimobrachial bodies are from norectoderm at the fourth brachial pouch. Those give rise to C-cells that produce calcitonin. Remember, calcitonin antagonizes parathyroid hormone, and there's an easy phrase to remember that. Calcitonin puts the bone in. So calcitonin shifts calcium into the bones. Arterial supply to the thyroid, that's from the inferior thyroid artery, from the thyrocervical trunk, and also the superior thyroid artery, the first branch of the external carotid. Drainage is via the superior, middle, and inferior thyroid veins. Notice that there is no middle thyroid artery. The inferior drains into the anominate, the inferior vein. The superior and middle veins drain into the internal jugular. Let's talk for a minute about the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Now, the recurrent laryngeal nerves uh, arise from the vagus, and they innervate all intrinsic laryngeal muscles except for the cricothyroid muscle. The ligament of Berry is the suspensory ligament located posteriorly right near the recurrent laryngeal nerves. Now, the left recurrent nerve, uh, that branch loops around the aorta at about the level of the ligamentum arteriosum and ultimately sits in the tracheoesophageal groove. The right 
recurrent laryngeal nerve, loops around the right subclavian artery. Recurrent laryngeal nerves are associated with inferior thyroid arteries. So before you go to ligate the inferior thyroid artery, just don't do it unless you're sure you're not ligating the recurrent laryngeal nerve along with it. So that's an important time to check as you go to ligate the inferior thyroid artery that you're not including a recurrent laryngeal nerve. Now in 1 to 2% of people, the recurrent laryngeal nerve is not recurrent. This is more common, uh, this non-recurrent recurrent laryngeal nerve is more common on the right side. Injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve gives hoarseness. Now bilateral injury may cause airway obstruction and need for tracheostomy. The superior laryngeal nerve arises from the vagus and gives the internal and external branches. This is the, um, uh, the most commonly injured nerve with thyroidectomy is the superior laryngeal nerve. Injury to the superior laryngeal nerve gives inability to project the voice and early voice fatigue, so that's a potential issue for singers like opera singers. So again, superior laryngeal nerve injury is the most common from thyroidectomy. The internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve gives sensation to the larynx, and the external branch gives motor function to the cricothyroid muscle. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at absitesmackdown.com. Now, in terms of hormones, T4 is the major hormone produced in the thyroid. It's about 80 to 85% of the production uh, is there. T3 is made in the thyroid and also via peripheral conversion of T4. T3 is the most active of the two and has a shorter half-life. A TSH and free T4 level will tell you whether a patient is hypo or hyperthyroid. So if you have an elevated TSH and a low free T4, that patient is hypothyroid. Thyroid releasing factor from the hypothalamus acts on the anterior pituitary to cause release of thyroid stimulating hormone. Now thyroid stimulating hormone acts on the thyroid to cause release of T4 and T3. Remember, a thyroid mass is evaluated by FNA. If you can't palpate it, uh, and it's been seen by ultrasound or some other imaging study, if you can't palpate a thyroid nodule or mass, or it's near vascular structures, an ultrasound-guided biopsy is the way to go. Next, let's talk about thyroid storm. Thyroid storm symptoms include uh, increased heart rate, a fever, high output cardiac failure as the most frequent cause of death, and numbness. It's typically seen in a patient who has unrecognized Graves' disease who then undergoes a surgical procedure. Remember the Wolf-Chaikoff effect is when the patient is given Lugol solution, which is high-dose iodine, and then that leads to inhibition of TSH action on the thyroid and coupling of iodine. So therefore there's less T4 and T3 made. The treatment is beta blockers, steroids, iodine, and propothiouracil, aka PTU. Indications for thyroidectomy and hyperthyroidism include tracheal compression, thyrotoxicosis, and even cosmesis. In pregnancy, do not give radioiodine, give PTU only. When it comes to hyperthyroidism, increased free T4 and low TSH, that's what's seen. Graves' disease is the most common cause, especially in women 20 to 40. 
HLA-B8 and DR3 are associated with graves. Moist skin, AFib, tachycardia, goiter, pretibial myxedema, and ophthalmic issues are seen. In addition to an elevated free T4 and a decreased TSH, you may see thyroid receptor autoantibodies. Initial therapy is medical, and if the patient fails medical treatment, the patient has a large goiter or is pregnant, surgical intervention is warranted. Next, let's talk about thyroiditis. In general, salicylates are given to different types of thyroiditis for symptomatic relief. Acute separative thyroiditis is due to a bacterial infection. It may be from a bacterial upper respiratory infection like staph or strep. White blood cell count elevation is seen, and the treatment is antibiotics and IND of any abscesses. But there are other types too, other than acute separative thyroiditis. For example, subacute thyroiditis uh, is uh, another type, and that's dequervians, and that's due to viral infection typically. It may be preceded by viral URI, aspirin use, NSAID use, steroids treatment option, and typically this resolves in four to six months with steroids. Typical changes of hyperthyroidism on labs are seen like an increased free T4 and a low TSH. However, the uh, SED rate is elevated. Another type of subacute thyroiditis is postpartum thyroiditis, and it's an autoimmune condition. It occurs in the postpartum period. We treat the symptoms, and it looks like dequervians, except the SED rate is normal rather than elevated. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your Absite review. Chronic thyroiditis is another type, and uh, one type of that is Hashimoto's. It's a type of chronic thyroiditis that's an autoimmune condition, and it's painless inflammation of the gland. Patients are initially hyperthyroid uh, with this, those sorts of labs, and then later hypothyroid. Antithyroid antibody is positive, and antithyroperoxidase antibody is also positive. You may treat the hypothyroid phase with thyroid hormone or treatment, uh, <laughs> thyroid hormone replacement. Now, thyroid cancer can develop in a patient with Hashimoto's, so you do need to maintain a high index of suspicion for conditions like thyroid lymphoma or nodules with Hashimoto's disease. Rydelstruma is a painless, woody inflammation of the gland. This is another type of chronic thyroiditis, and in it, a lymphocyte infiltrate of the gland can be seen. You resect thyroid stromal tissue with either an isthmethectomy or tracheostomy as part of a tracheostomy in order to relieve the compressive symptoms. So you resect the thyroid stromal tissue and you may need to perform a tracheostomy to relieve compression. We treat with thyroxin and steroids. Next, let's talk about hypothyroidism and common causes here include thyroid resection, I-131 ablation, thyroiditis, and medications like lithium and amiodarone. Symptoms include weight gain, constipation, thinning hair, cold intolerance, pretibial myxedema. Cretinism is congenital hypothyroidism, and we treat with levothyroxine. Myxedema coma is associated with a high mortality rate, and there we secure the airway, we achieve normal thermia, and we treat with IVT4, or aka thyroxine. The five H's of myxedema coma, hypotension, hypothermia, hypoventilation, hyponatremia, and hypoglycemia. Next, next up, let's talk about thyroid cancer. This is actually the most frequent endocrine malignancy in the United States. 
There's a 5 to 10% chance only of malignancy if follicular cells are seen on FNA. So if you see follicular cells, there is still an associated chance of malignancy, and it's 5 to 10%. Follicular adenomas uh, do still need a lobectomy to prove it's a benign adenoma. Cold nodules, male patient, age over 50, all worrisome for thyroid cancer. Next up, let's talk about the types of thyroid cancer, including papillary cancer, follicular cancer, anaplastic cancer, medullary cancer, and lymphoma. So first up, let's talk about papillary cancer. This is about 80% of all thyroid cancers, and it typically affects men, uh, sorry, it typically affects women who are 20 to 40 years of age. It's associated with exposure to radiation, it spreads via lymphatics, and the majority of these present with metastasis, but that is not prognostic of outcome. This is, again, interesting. Remember, most patients who have papillary thyroid cancer present with metastases, but those are not prognostic of outcome, unlike many other cancers. So remember, if you see a lateral ectopic thyroid rest or a node biopsy uh, that says normal thyroid tissue, well, that's actually metastatic papillary cancer. So if you feel a node, you biopsy, it comes back normal thyroid tissue. It's actually metastatic papillary cancer. Somoma bodies and orphan anticells are typically seen on pathology. Now, if it's less than one centimeter, the standard recommendation is lobectomy and isthmusectomy. Some argue a total thyroidectomy should be performed because papillary cancer is multicentric and diffuse. <clears throat> if the cancer is over one centimeter, high-risk patient or bilateral, do the total thyroidectomy. If there's a positive central node at the neck, do a central node dissection. If there's a lateral node positive at the neck, those patients need modified radical neck dissections. Give iodine-131 post-op if the lesion is over 1.5 centimeters, unless the patient is pregnant. Follow thyroglobulin levels post-op because that will help indicate tumor recurrence. So thyroglobulin is a tumor marker and will help you know when the patient, if the patient, recurs. Approximately 95% five-year survival rate for papillary cancer, and of the 5% who die, the death is related to thyroid cancer, papillary thyroid cancer, the death is from local disease. The AIMS and the TNM system may be used to determine mortality risk. Age is the biggest prognostic factor for thyroid cancer. Next up, follicular cancer. It's the most common type in women over 50. It represents about 10% of thyroid cancer cases. The Herthel cell variant is more likely to be multifocal and bilateral. Herthel cells are eosinophilic cells that increase the rate of lymphatic spread. However, in general, follicular cancer demonstrates a hematogenous spread. FNA demonstrates microfollicles. Treatment is lobectomy or a total thyroidectomy. If cancer persists or recurs after that lobectomy, perform a completion thyroidectomy and treat with post-op iodine-131 and go on to follow the thyroglobulin levels. Five-year survival here is approximately 70%, except Herthel cells do give slightly increased mortality rate. Another important question, post-op iodine-131, yes or no? Well, consider iodine-131 about six weeks after surgery when TSH is at its maximum. This allows maximal response. Also do this for tumors over one centimeter, disease outside of the thyroid, and again, you need a total thyroidectomy, really, for iodine-131 to be truly effective. Choice of surgical procedure for papillary and follicular cancer? Well, 
lobectomy if the lesion does not meet the total thyroidectomy indications that I'm about to share with you. So in general, lobectomy, but total thyroidectomy if the lesion's over one centimeter, there's disease outside the thyroid, if there's multifocal or bilateral disease, or if there's previous x-ray therapy to the neck. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Next up, anaplastic cancer. This is the most common type in women over 65 years of age, but represents approximately 3% of cancers overall. It often shows up with metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis. It's either poorly differentiated or undifferentiated. Any resection is really for improvement of airway issues only. The two-year survival is approximately 10%. It's a bad actor. And most commonly, patients only survive approximately four months. Next up, medullary cancer. Medullary cancer of the thyroid has an incidence in men versus women that's about the same. About 5% of cases of thyroid cancer overall are medullary. About one-fourth of patients who have medullary cancer have MEN2. And with those, you see bilateral disease more often and multicentric disease more often. The RET mutation causes MEN. Increased calcitonin is seen owing to hyperplastic C-cells. This cancer, in fact, arises from C-cells. You see also an increased CEA. Interestingly, you see amyloid on biopsy that gives, quote, alpha green birefringence, unquote. So if you see that with a biopsy of a thyroid nodule, that's medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. And again, it could be associated with men about one quarter of the time. So remember, in those patients, look at them for men and rule out the adrenal lesion that may be associated. And make sure you address that first, you resect that first after routine preparations. Perform total thyroidectomy and central node dissection for these patients with medullary thyroid cancer. Do not give iodine-131 to medullary thyroid cancer. And again, if nodes positive, not again, for the first time here, nodes are positive, approximately 40% survival at 10 years. If nodes are negative, approximately 80% survival at 10 years. So node status does make a more significant survival difference here than what we saw with papillary. Last up, lymphoma. This is unusual. It's about 1% of thyroid cancer cases, and it's more common in women. It's seen with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It's typically associated with a non-Hodgkin's type of lymphoma, and you may need airway intervention if it expands quickly. There's approximately a 50% five-year survival, and this drops to 35% if extrathyroidal disease is present. Let's talk about MEN2. Both MEN2A and 2B are due to autosomal dominant mutations in the RET uh, proto-oncogene on chromosome 10. Both MEN2A and MEN2B include medullary carcinoma of the thyroid and pheochromocytoma. So when you find a family with MEN2, remember, the children will inherit the disease from the biologic parents. So if you find yourself discovering a medullary carcinoma of the thyroid in an adult, recall that about 25% are MEN2-related. So test chromosome 10 and find the RET mutation. And make sure you check them for an adrenal lesion, a pheochromocytoma, before surgery. If one is there, you'll need to address it. And also remember, any biologic children will also have the gene as well. So you need to follow recommendations regarding thyroidectomy for children who have it. 
And in a second, we'll share those two. For men 2A or Sipple syndrome, uh, in addition to everything we talked about, they may have hyperparathyroidism also. They, they will have hyperparathyroidism. You'll need to test for RET, like we said, chromosome 10, and there needs to be a prophylactic thyroidectomy by five years of age for children. For men 2B, uh, it's similar. Uh, they have similar findings and additionally have marfanoid body habitus and mucosal neuromas, but there's no hyperparathyroidism. However, there is adrenal lesion, there is medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. Also, a prophylactic thyroidectomy should be performed in infancy. So there you have it. There's some important cancer types, genetic considerations, and anatomic considerations from the thyroid. So make sure you take a look at it. These typically come up on the ab site. And again, best of luck with your study as you get ready for the test for this coming year. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at absitesmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.